Okay, good morning once again. I heard it starting to quiet down, so I thought that was my cue to go. So uh, we're going to uh, be in our Elijah class this morning. We just have the, the two lessons to finish up uh, this morning and uh, the next week, of course. And we are, we've, we've already gone through the life of Elijah in the Old Testament. So we've gone through all of those passages, noticing uh, the, the accounts in 1 Kings and 2 Kings of, of his life. And uh, all of those great accounts, but uh, the past, well, last week we started, we jumped into the New Testament, right? Now, Elijah, of course, is not alive in the New Testament, uh, but he's mentioned quite a bit, and uh, there's a lot of material there for us to look at, and so last week we kind of just concentrated on uh, Elijah and John the Baptist and the, the, um, the similarities and differences there, of course, uh, as we noted last week a lot, as we talked a lot, you know, Elijah, of course, he goes up in that whirlwind in heaven, and some of those prophets who are standing far off, they didn't really understand what was going, and so there was some speculation, did, you know, did he really die? You know, well, where did he go, right? And they wanted to go out and search for him, and of course, then we come to uh, the very last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, the prophet Malachi, and we read these passages last week. Remember those last two verses talked about uh, the Elijah to come, right, that God's going to send Elijah uh, to come and prepare, you know, that, that way, prepare the path for, for the, the Messiah. And, of course, so then we, you know, talked about how that happened, right, in the New Testament. But it wasn't literally Elijah that did it. It was uh, one who came in the spirit of Elijah. And that, of course, was John the Baptist, someone who we see had a lot of similarities, right? He, he dressed similarly, you know, a rough, rough uh, outdoorsman, uh, ate Sort of uh, the, the, that outdoors type of meal, right? Locusts and honey. And um, so, there, again, there was a lot of similarities there. Was not literally Elijah, but figuratively Elijah. And so, when we come into today's lesson, and we're going to talk really about uh, what Jesus had to say of Elijah. You know, again, Elijah is not far from the minds of the Jews in the first century, right, when it pertains to eschatology. Now, uh, that's a big fancy word. Uh, what does eschatology mean? I don't know if we've ever talked about this or had a class about this, but... End, yeah, end things, right? The, 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 the study of death and judgment, the end times. And so um, whenever that study comes up, whenever, you know, people start to talk about that, you know, sometimes Elijah comes to mind, right? Even today, um, Elijah is still uh, held in high regards in some uh, people's uh, eschatology, right? Uh, a study of final things, right? They're still looking for Elijah, right? You especially look at the, those of a premillennial uh, background, right? And I took this, I was trying to find specifically someone who, you know, or a group that's still looking for Elijah today. And uh, I, I got this off of uh, a website. And, uh, and Revelation chapter 11, for instance. So a lot of their theology is coming from the book of Revelation. Of course, a lot of premillennial doctrine comes to the book of Revelation because uh, they're thinking in, in their part that a lot of this has not come to pass, right? Uh, the book of Revelation. And so you get to a passage in Revelation 11, for instance, it's not a chapter that I think we've read uh, very much, uh, but they're thinking that, you know, this is a chapter that's yet to have happened, right? And so you get to Revelation chapter 11, and it talks about these, these two witnesses. And supposedly, Elijah is 
uh, one of these witnesses. And so here, here's what they said on the website. It said, uh, said about their, their, their idea of eschatology, their theory of end times. It says, you know, once the church ascends to heaven in the rapture, God will raise 144,000 new believers and appoint two witnesses to preach the gospel to everyone left to hear it. And so, you know, obviously we could poke a lot of holes in that statement. Of course, uh, the rapture, right? That, that's a false doctrine. Uh, the 144,000, of course, that, you know, again, in the book of Revelation, they're taking a lot of this in the book of Revelation and they're making it very literal, right? That there's going to be this, there's this true 144,000. Uh, there's going to be uh, these two witnesses that are going to come and preach the gospel. And again, there's some reason why, of course, they're not just taking this out of thin air. You know, you, you come to Revelation chapter 11, verse, uh, for instance, and you'll notice in verse 3 that it talks about that these, um, and I will grant authority uh, to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days, uh, clothed in sackcloth. Now, uh, if someone could do the math real quick, 1260 days is how many years? So we need Mike. <laughs> Yeah, three and a half years, right. And what do we know about Elijah's um, ministry? Or uh, there was something that we studied way, way, way uh, back at the beginning that took three and a half years uh, during his time. Remember that that, that, that drought that came, right? You remember that drought that that God uh, sent on the land? And so three and a half years. And so people look at that passage and says, okay, okay, that, that sounds a little bit like Elijah. You get to verse 5, and if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Well, what did Elijah do during his ministry with fire? Yeah, he summoned fire from heaven, didn't he? And so again, there, there's a connection. Then you look at verse 6, uh, and these have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during their days of their prophesying. Well, again, we just talked about that, right? The, the drought that came. And uh, then you go to verse 12. And it says, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. Then they went up into heaven in the cloud and their enemies watched them. And so again, what does that sound like? Sounds, sounds a lot like how Elijah, you know, quote unquote died, right? He ascended into heaven. So again, there is, you know, the point that I'm trying to make is there is a theology, there is a um, there, the, uh, there is, you know, an eschatology again, the idea that people are still waiting for Elijah to come. But again, what did Jesus tell us last week in those passages that we read about Elijah? He came, didn't he? He came, again, not literally, but he came figuratively in the spirit of the man, John the Baptist, right? Elijah has come. He says, if you can uh, believe it, if you can um, understand it, right? John was Elijah to come. And so, um, but again, today people are still waiting for Elijah. In the first century, when we're reading in the New Testament, they're looking for Elijah, right? They're expecting him to come and maybe try to break up some of these uh, these rabbis, you know, who are internally uh, d- discussing the scriptures and, you know, they're, they're speeding over the scriptures and it's Elijah who's going to come to straighten all this out. Or some thought that, you know, Elijah Elijah's going to come and perform some great miracles or, or most importantly, that he's going to come and usher in the Christ, right? That, that he is that forerunner. 
right? But again, it was simply in the spirit of Elijah that the forerunner would come being John the Baptist. And so that explains why, you know, uh, in the New Testament, you get to a passage like John chapter 1, verse 21, and they're here talking, uh, the Jews here are talking to John the Baptist, and they ask him that question. John chapter 1, verse 21, are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? And of course, John answers, well, no, I am not. Then they ask him, are you the prophet? And he, and he answers, no, again, right? The prophet, uh, the Christ. And so uh, they're looking for him. Uh, again, their dress, their preaching style matched, right? Uh, this outdoorsman, uh, they were both these hard preachers preaching, uh, you know, fire and brimstone, as we would say. Uh, but again, they weren't. And so they're looking for him. Do you, has anyone ever mentioned to you maybe that uh, you, ha- you have a doppelganger? You know what that is? Like somebody that looks like you? Has anyone ever said that? That, hey, I, I thought I saw you at Walmart yesterday. The, the person looked just like you. Uh, sometimes it can be, um, you know, sometimes it can be a compliment, right? Depending on who the doppelganger is, right? That, that person. Sometimes it can be a disappointment. Um, I remember uh, the, the story of this guy by the name of uh, Ralph Alsman. Uh, he looked just like, and we have to go back in time for this, but he looked just like, you should look at some of these pictures on, on the internet, that he looked just like John Dillinger. Well, you know who John Dillinger was? Famous bank robber, gangster, you know, right around Chicago, right? So how would you like that your doppelganger was a bank robber, was a gangster? Would you like that at all? You wouldn't, would you? And this, this man, Ralph Alsman, who looked just like him, you know, he was arrested multiple times. He was interrogated multiple times. He was shot at by the police multiple times because they thought he was John Dillinger, right? And so John the Baptist says, I am not Elijah, right? I'm not Elijah's doppelganger. Although I might outwardly look like him, I might dress like him, I might talk like him, I'm not him, right? So... I'm not him. So then the people in the New Testament not only uh, went to John and asked if he was Elijah, if he's the one who was to come, but they also came to Jesus and asked him that. Who do men say that I am? Remember Jesus asked that question in Matthew 16? Who do men say that I am? And uh, Peter and the apostles said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah. Some say you're one of the other prophets. Right? And that, that, of course, is when Peter says, uh, or Jesus asks him, well, who do you say that I am? And then Peter goes, gives the good confession, right? You are the Christ, the Son uh, of the living God. But again, people uh, got Jesus even confused with Elijah. Uh, I mentioned this in a sermon a while ago, maybe a month or so ago. But, uh, you know, what does that say about those men, about Jeremiah and Elijah and John the Baptist being compared to Jesus? Is that a compliment? Yeah, for, for someone to think that, hey, you, you know, you're, you're Jesus, right? You're the Messiah, right? So what, what a compliment for those individuals. But again, Jesus wasn't Elijah, right? He was instead the Christ, the son of the living God. And we're going to see in this account today in Mark chapter 9 that that's important, right? God, God really wants us to understand that, that Jesus 
was not Elijah, uh, nobody else. But he's the one and true uh, living uh, son of the living God. And so um, what, what account in Scripture does that take place where, where Elijah and Moses meet with Jesus? Transfiguration. Yeah, the transfiguration. So let's, let's look at Mark's account, Mark chapter 9. Again, Jesus is going to be up on this high mountain. Moses and Elijah are going to be transfigured, or excuse me, are going to be up there with him. Jesus is going to be transfigured. Of course, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. So basically, that's the whole Old Testament, the law and the prophets. They're going to be up there on that high mountain with Jesus. And God's going to say, Jesus, right? This is my son, right? This is the one who you need to listen to. And uh, then hopefully if we have time, we'll look at one more account with Jesus on the cross that mentions Elijah as well. But uh, in Mark chapter 9, let's start here in verse 2. It says, uh, Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. So six days later, after that great event where Peter confesses, right, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that great confession. You got six days later, they go up into this mountain. Jesus is transfigured. Just, that just basically means he, he's changed, right? His appearance has changed. Um, if you look at the Greek word for that, it's, um, it's where we get our word metamorphosis, right? So you kind of understand, right, how as a caterp- caterpillar metamorphosis. I don't know if I got the right uh, verb, but metamorphosizes into uh, a butterfly, right? And so you kind of get the idea here that Jesus changes, you know, not um, not his essence, not his um, or anything of that nature, but it's just how he looked changed, right? And, and Mark especially tells us uh, his clothing. Again, what, what's he say about the clothing of Jesus? It's a white, isn't it? Can anyone on earth make it that white? No. I love that verse there. It says in verse 3, His garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Right? As hard as we try to get those stains out of our children's white clothes, we can never do it. We can never make it as white as the clothes that Jesus apparently was wearing at this moment. So they're up there on that high mountain. Verse 4 says, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses and they were talking to Jesus. Now, uh, there's a lot of speculation as to where this is happening, right? Uh, there's a lot of mountains that we talk about in Scripture. You know, of course, Mount Sinai probably being the most famous. Uh, but a lot of people believe this is on Mount Hermon. Now, they believe that because uh, if you go back to chapter 8, they're in Caesarea Philippi. Again, that's where that confession takes place, that, that good confession of Peter six days ago. So they think they're still in this area. And so Mount Hermon would be uh, the logical choice uh, where this is taking place. But that's not important, right? The Bible doesn't tell us where it took place. So that's not what it's important. But what's taking place, that's what's important. And, uh, but there are a lot of similarities here between what took place on Mount Sinai and what's taking place here. And um, why, do you think Mark, why do you think Mark's trying to make this connection? Right? He lets us know that six days later this happened, 
Well, if you go all the way back to Exodus chapter 24, when uh, Moses, remember when he's going up onto Mount Sinai to speak to God, uh, it tells us in verse 16 that he had to wait there six days, and then on the seventh day he went up. And it was also told that it was on a high mountain. So you got a lot of these connections here between that great event and this great event. And so, I mean, it's kind of a, 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 a simple answer, but why do you think Mark is trying to lay this out to make this connection to us? I mean, is this a big deal, what's about to take place? It's a big deal, right? And so I think Mark's trying to get, a, get those uh, who are reading this, get their minds to think, okay, Mount Sinai, uh, Mount Hermon, uh, this is a big deal here. Because they're going up uh, on this great mountain uh, six days later. And, but here's what we want to emphasize. So if you go back to Mark 9, verse 4, it says, uh, Elijah appeared to them along with Moses. So if, uh, if we read Matthew's account or Luke's account of this same thing, it's going to mention Moses first. So it's sort of interesting that Mark lays out Elijah first. You know, when Bible writers are writing and they're listing things, they usually list the, the person of importance first. Right? And so it's just interesting that um, everybody else mentions Moses first, but Mark is mentioning Elijah first, right? And he's got the greater emphasis here in the book of Mark, especially in this portion, uh, because uh, if we back up to verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 28, you know, that's where Elijah's mentioned. And if we fast forward to chapter 9, verses 11 through 13, there's another discussion with Elijah, right? So Elijah here is mentioned first. And so we'll just want to keep that in mind here. Uh, Let's look at verses 5 and 6. So Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. So ultimately, what's going on here, it's not about who's greater, right? It's not uh, between Elijah and Moses, right? We don't, we don't necessarily uh, need to have that discussion here, right? But both ably served God, both stood as, again, representatives here, one standing as a representative of the law, one standing as a representative of the prophets, right? But it's Jesus, of course, the superiority of Jesus is what we're concerned about. But here's Peter. And we know Peter, right? What, what does Peter tend to do? He tends to blurt out things, doesn't he? he? He's not somebody that holds back. And then Peter says, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here and let us make three tabernacles. Now, was Peter's offer well-intentioned? Yeah, it was, wasn't it? Here's three great men. Let's build these three booths here to commemorate this event. It was well-intentioned, but was Peter's offer misguided? It was, wasn't it? Why, why was it misguided? <laughs> sure. He's not seeing the, the, the importance, right, of this event. You know, basically, I mean, for Peter to say, let's build Jesus a tabernacle, and then let's build Elijah one, and let's build Moses, what's he doing with Elijah and Moses? Yeah, he's putting them on the same level, right? Uh, You know, we're going to build each one of you men one of these tabernacles because, um, again, because he's putting them all on the same level, 
right? As if they were alike. Um, so, yes, is it well-intentioned, right? But, but misguided, right? We, we can do that in the church as well sometimes, right? That we, we have well-intentioned means, uh, but sometimes we, we might be misguided, right? As far as uh, not focusing on Jesus. And so uh, Peter, Peter's that guy, right? When uh, things are, um, you know, you just can't understand what's going on. He's the guy that instead of being quiet and just letting things work out, you know, he speaks up, right? And he keeps talking and saying things. And, and so he says, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make one of these, let's make uh, each of you a tabernacle. And he's going to get his, uh, uh, well, what, what am I thinking? He, he's going to get another chance at this, right? It's a sort of um, make up for this mistake that he made. Uh, when he pens uh, his second letter, in Second Peter, uh, chapter one, verses sixteen and eighteen, more eloquently, he's going to get a chance to explain what's going on there. And I'll just read this: Second uh, Peter, chapter one, starting in verse sixteen. Peter writes, "For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to Him by the majestic glory." This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So Peter gets redemption. Right? He gets an opportunity to elegantly uh, explain what happened on that day. But back in the, the heat of things, back in the moment, right, he sort of makes a little bit of a mistake, doesn't he? By putting the three all on, um, on the same plane there. And that's going to get a response. It's going to get a response from who? Jesus, yeah. And especially the voice, right, from, from, from heaven. Let's look at that. Verse, uh, verse 7. So we're in Mark 9, verse 7. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Hear him. Right, God has said this before. Right, remember back at uh, the baptism of Jesus, God said, "This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased." Right, He said this before, but in this case, He did a little bit more, didn't He? I mean, what He what did He specifically say at the very end? Listen. Yeah, li- listen to Him. Right, Jesus is not just the Son of God. We understand that, but He also says, "This is the one in whom we must listen to." Right? This, this, he's confirming the divine mission of Jesus, right? In the presence of Moses and Elijah, right? The three of them are standing around. And Moses and Elijah are there. They're great men. They're great prophets of old. But God's pointing to Jesus and saying, it's him that you need to listen to. Hear him, right? Uh, the, 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 the apostles that are around, Jesus' inner trio, you know, Peter, James, and John, they're listening to this. And, of course, they've got great respect for Moses, right? He's the lawgiver. He's the one who brought the, the Ten Commandments and all the law, uh, the law of Moses to the people that they follow. And then, of course, you got Elijah, again, who represents all of the prophets and all of the great things that they have to say. And so you're an apostle there, and you're hearing this voice out of heaven saying, uh, This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. It's going to be quite a shock, right? Uh, 
Because again, you know, you've been following these men. You've been reading their writings. You've been following the laws that they were giving. But now you're getting this message. It's this one, right? It's my son who you need to listen to. And so, you know, we understand that, you know, not so long into the future, right? The, the law, the law of Moses, it's going to go away. Right? It's going to be nailed to the cross. Uh, the, 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 the law, the prophets, all of that. And it's going to be the authority of Jesus, right? The words of Jesus, the New Testament, that's going to be the focus uh, going forward. So uh, let's look at verses 8 and 9 to finish out these thoughts. And it says, uh, So all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. And they were coming down from the mountain. He gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. So after God speaks, Elijah, Moses, they disappear. It's just Jesus there. It's just him who remains. And they're coming down the mountain. And Jesus basically instructs them to keep what they saw a secret for a little while. Not forever, but for a little while why do you think Jesus is making this request? Yeah, absolutely, right? The, the time wasn't right. Uh, do you think there could be some... Uh, what we've already talked about, uh, especially regarding Elijah, do you think that there could be some mass confusion if you know, they came down the mountain and started saying, hey, we saw Elijah, we saw Elijah? Would that maybe kickstart something? A lot of excitement? Because again, the Jews are thinking, okay, when Elijah comes, right, then uh, the Christ is right behind him. And so, I, yeah, so I think Jesus is saying, listen, the time is not right, right? Uh, so keep this a secret. You can explain this later. Uh, but, uh, but again, you know, letting them know that, you know, they just saw Elijah might spark something. And so uh, I think that we got about five minutes uh, so let's finish uh, the verses here, verse 10 through 13. So they seized upon that statement. Okay, what statement was that? Well, Jesus just said in verse 9 uh, that he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. And so they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore all things. And yet how it is written of the son of man that he will suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has indeed come and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. So we won't take the time to kind of dissect uh, those verses, but uh, I think you get the emphasis here uh, that, uh, again, that. You know, the scribes, right? The people are saying, Elijah must come first. But Jesus emphatically says, Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, uh, just as it is written of him. Uh, we'll have to go to Matthew's account to see that Jesus specifically says, this is John, right? Elijah was John. Matthew chapter 17, verse 13 mentions that. So uh, let, let's quickly look at one more account. This is Matthew chapter 27. Uh, starting in verse 45. Again, just one more quick account of Elijah being mentioned here in the New Testament during the gospel accounts. This, of course, is Jesus on the cross. Uh, Matthew 27, uh, starting in verse 45. 
Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sambathani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. And immediately, immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with some sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So again, here, here's that idea that people are waiting for Elijah to come, right? They, they hear Jesus say these words. Uh, these are, uh, Jesus would have spoken Aramaic, right? So they hear him say, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sambathani. So what is Eli, Eli right there? What does that sound like to you? Or look like? It looks like the first half of Elijah, right? So the people are automatically thinking that they're getting some things mixed up here. Thinking he's obviously calling for Elijah, isn't he? He's calling for Elijah to come and save him. Um, but of course, it's not, right? Uh, he's not calling for divine intervention, right? Because Jesus willingly gave his life for us all, didn't he? And so we'll end it here. Uh, but appreciate uh, your attention this morning as we've uh, looked at these, uh, these gospel accounts that mentioned Elijah. Elijah's mentioned, I think, 29 times in the New Testament. And so we'll look at some more of those in our last lesson next week, uh, specifically in the book of Romans and in James, where Elijah is used as uh, examples in Scripture. So again, appreciate uh, everyone's uh, particip- participation this uh, morning as we close up this study on Elijah. And Brother Ricky, you have our closing prayer for us.